You're listening to Coach Talk, a podcast about coaching for improvement in health and social care. Here you will meet several international experts and coaches to discuss challenges, opportunities, models and tools that might be useful when you coach others to make improvements. Hello to all our international listeners and we are still at the Microsystem Festival and this is the last day and it's the Improvement Science Day. And in the studio we have Julie Reed and my name is Nicolien Wackerberg and I'm Senior Development Leader at Culturum. Julie, who are you? Hi, so I'm an Improvement Science Research Fellow and I'm also a Deputy Director of an organisation called Clark, which is a research programme based in uh, the UK and we're based in Northwest London. Yes, and I enjoyed your keynote very much this morning. Thank you. And it was a lot about um, improvement work. You've been working for many, many years. And my message was, oh, wow, it was not so easy as you thought. And <laughs> you were really addressing that. Mm. And I think there are a lot of coaches outside who are struggling. It's not so easy as we think it is. Mm. Um, can you can you tell some more for our listeners? Yeah, yeah. I think we uh, started our our research program is to look at translating evidence into practice, and we wanted to use quality improvement approaches to see if that helped people. Um, and we encountered lots of challenges at the beginning. We thought it would be easy for people to understand the quality improvement methods, that they would be motivated and willing to apply them in practice, and that they would understand they would be able to use them well on a daily basis. Um, and we learnt within the first year that all of these things were not true. Um, and we've understood that it's a really big uh, change in culture for people to start using quality improvement methods, whether it's as simple as really working collaboratively with your team. I assumed, I'm not from a background of healthcare, so I assumed that people who work together on a ward every day would have really good relationships and be able to talk and share information well. But sadly, this often isn't the case. Uh, people uh, maybe don't have uh, the trust to share their true feelings or there are strong hierarchies where people don't feel they can share their information or their concerns with other people. Um, so even a simple thing like bringing people together well to talk and share ideas about their improvement work was very challenging. Mm, you said you're, you don't have a background in healthcare. Uh, tell a little bit more about your background. So my background is in chemistry. So I actually worked in drug development for uh, cancer agents. Mm. And uh, I made a transition to healthcare about 10 years ago, first working in some administrative jobs before becoming a research and development manager in a hospital. And through that, I realized that uh, maybe the attitude to research wasn't as positive as I thought it would be, um, and that people weren't sure how research related to their daily work or the problems that they faced, and it often felt like a distraction rather than a help, which surprised me as an academic. So I became really curious about the gap between research evidence and practice, and that's uh, yeah, led to where I am today. Yeah, you were also talking this morning about uh, we were planning a lot and we were doing a lot of evaluation as researchers. Mm. Um, so, so what what was the missing point and what what, what is the gap? Mm. Yeah, I think it's uh, very easy to get preoccupied with the work you can do away from the setting of change. So to spend a long time planning, uh, reviewing all the evidence, uh, 
writing lots of policies or procedures or you know trying to anticipate how everything will work all at once um, and the same with evaluation in healthcare we tend to conduct uh, very large-scale evaluations that often take many years to conduct many years to analyze and then to publish um, so there's a big delay between the learning of whether something worked and our ability to act on those findings um, so I think how we've reconceptualized the relationship between research and practice is to um, focus much more on learning through doing. Uh, there's only so much you can learn in a room with four walls or from the paper or from planning. And you learn so much so quickly, often unexpected and surprising things. When you go out and start testing changes or speaking to people on the front line or working with patients, um, so we think that uh, we should spend less of our energy just planning or just evaluating and much more time in a very proactive learning through doing and conducting changes. Okay, so the learning by doing, it's like the PDSA cycle, mm -hmm. but you also have done some research about this PDSA cycle mm -hmm. and uh, maybe a bit disappointment there as well, or what? what how do we want to address that? Uh, yeah, so I would say that... Um, PDSA in healthcare is, is more challenging than I think people talk about often. Uh, I think Don Berwick had a nice uh, expression of its simplicity belies its complexity. And that's definitely our experience. When you learn about Plan, Do, Study, Act in the classroom, it seems quite straightforward. Um, but in reality, we found people don't often use the method well. So we were curious as to why, what's going on. Um, and essentially, our research has shown that uh, using Plan, Do, Study, Act cycles well in a complex social system is really dependent on your relationships with people in the system. So if you're going to come up with a good plan, you need to um, really understand how the system works. It, the plan has to be relevant and going to fit with the work practices of the people you're asking to change their practices. But they also need to be motivated and energized because otherwise they can just choose not to participate in the change. Um, so that's just one example. But, you know, it's you can't. I guess it's another example of you can't plan in isolation. You have to be out and understanding the setting where the change is going to take place and the people who are doing the work to inform uh, how you conduct the Plan, Do, Study, Act cycles. Is it possible really to plan for somebody else? <laughs> that's a good question. I think uh, you can help other people to plan, I think, uh, to provide a structure um, and to think, for example, well, you know, if this is a change idea, how will we know if it's worked and who's going to collect the data and who, who are we going to get feedback from and when will we do it? And so I think there's a lot of very practical, logistical uh, things that uh, can be done. And that, yeah, I think it can be beneficial to people on the front line to have additional, like an improvement manager or uh, who can help provide that extra support to happen. But I think without the in-depth understanding and insights of how the system works and how people are thinking and feeling about the change, then no, you can't plan in isolation. I think it was Lewin who said, if you really want to understand the system, you have to change it. Absolutely. So, so your understanding not only starts by, by visiting and looking and observing, but your understanding will also be deepened when you start your change mm -hmm. and say, oh, my plan is not working. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, yeah, you, in a way you have to plan, but you also have to start. Yes, 
Um, and then you said, okay, then as a researcher, you are coming in more to evaluate, but you want to have the research in, in the whole way. what's the relationship yeah Yeah, so I guess that's a good question I mean so yeah I feel traditionally in healthcare the role of evaluation is often something that happens afterwards yes Um, and sometimes you may know that or from the beginning that you will have people evaluating externally and often we don't know until later that someone may come and evaluate things Uh, I think that yeah the relationship between research and practice should be much closer I think researchers have a wealth of knowledge from all of their previous evaluations and from studying the literature about what the problems are that people are likely to face, how they may best overcome them, uh, to advise on their plans before people even start, uh, to warn them about the risks they might encounter. So I think really sharing all the wealth of learning that's out there right at the beginning of the project. Then as the project's being conducted, I think they're really uh, powerful allies in helping ensure you have really rigorous data, that you're analysing the data properly, uh, that you're using it to inform your actions and learning appropriately, but also for qualitative feedback, for really understanding what's going on here. And, you know, perhaps if things aren't proceeding, can we understand it more in depth, what matters to the staff or are there hidden power hierarchies or hidden problems that aren't apparent uh, immediately to the service? So really informing the whole conduct of the work. And then at the end, if uh, they can help to summarize all of the learning to help share that learning with other people. Um, So what really happened in this project and what do we think the active ingredients were, what made it successful, how did they make it happen? And I think having, if you work together in practice, you have a much more realistic and honest understanding of that. Whereas perhaps if you just come and ask questions at the end, you can only understand so much about Mm. what really happened a year before, for example. Well, nowadays I, I hear quite a lot about power mm-hmm. uh, and hierarchies. Mm-hmm. So, so if you are going out and say, oh, well, here is a hidden power. Mm. Uh, as a coach, what should you do then? Uh, <laughs> but because maybe you can see it, and but, but what will, yeah. What can we do? Yeah, so what? Yeah, that's a big question. Uh, so yeah, I don't think there's unfortunately any one simple answer. But I think the biggest thing that we've learned through all of our programs is to um, that we need to stop people viewing each other as objects. Um, so to uh, dehumanize people and to not really uh, and to see them as a problem or a source of irritation um, or a disruption, um, but to really start understanding each other as human beings, as people. Um, so what matters to you and what does it feel like to be in your shoes? Um, so I think kind of uh, creating Um, that perception and we have examples uh, of where consultants have started working with patients and it's really transformed the views of each other so the consultant may start with the view what could a patient tell me that I don't already know but equally the patient is just as uh, you know doctors are rubbish they're useless Um, and after a while they can both say oh I didn't really understand the pressures the other person was under or what it was like to be in their shoes. And I think once you start doing that, it can transform your relationships, but it takes time and often it takes a lived experience. So rather than just talking about something, actually to find something even very small to work on together, I think can be a much more powerful way to transform hierarchies. 
Yeah, I also remember from your um, PowerPoint that it was um, stop blaming each other. It mm -hmm. was what, what can you contribute? Mm -hmm. So if you mm -hmm. have that, uh, that positive side the whole time, that okay, okay, we, we maybe don't understand each other, but, but what can you contribute and what can I do? Um, yeah, so yeah. The, the positive attitude is, is the ground. But well, I think it's positive and I think it's also understanding um, what is negative in the other person's life. Because I think it, um, this may be an oversimplification, but I think we always know why our life is difficult. I have too many deadlines, I have too much pressure, not enough resource, not enough time, you, you know, and you don't understand what it's like to be me. But then often we think for other people, it's easier. Like, uh, you know, so as an example, um, one of the academics that we work with, um, I think uh, one of the practitioners in our team just thought all she did was sit around and write papers. And she imagined her in this life of luxury and reflection and, you know, mm. uh, but as she got to know her, she realized that she is also writing her papers, even though she's an academic, in her spare time and at her weekends. And her jobs are full of uh, teaching and management and managing students and managing political relationships and joining committees. And, you know, once they started to understand that they had these idealized views of each other's world that don't reflect the pressures and the realities that people are under so i think that is really important to have that shared understanding yeah we learned from marjorie godfrey another person who was also here in in the festival that you she's always doing a check-in with her team mm -hmm. just to know that okay how are you today and what's mm. on your mind today um but i also realized when we when we do that when we do the check-in Sometimes you get completely drained because mm -hmm. everybody is telling, I'm worse, I'm worse than you. and I'm It's worse a competition. Yeah, yeah, in a way. <laughs> yeah. so, can, can you recognize that? Absolutely, yeah. Oh, I think that's quite uh, systemic of our culture. Like, you know, it's all, uh, to be the most busy, the most stressed. It's, yeah, an, yeah. it's a pr almost uh, a cultural expectation or a pride that we have these uh, characteristics. So, mm. yeah. So if I'm going to tell, well, I, I have nothing to do and uh, oh, then I should be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because people will think, oh, she, she's lazy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But in a way, because our coaches, we know that they are working as clinicians and as coaches. Uh, so it is, it is much, it's mm -hmm. much work. Mm -hmm. So we're also um, trying to ask them, how, how do you keep your sustainability as a coach? Mm -hmm. um, any thoughts about that? How you can keep the energy as a coach when you know you have both your own work and you have to coach another team and maybe a team that doesn't want or whatever. Mm. Yeah, gosh, that's a really big question. I think uh, there's a lot of in the happiness literature around being able to set boundaries um, and being able to say no uh, to taking things on which I think is really not normal in our culture um, is always not well practiced. So I think my view is I think we need to be much more honest and realistic about the energy it really takes, the time, the resource. Um, and because what I often see over and over again is under-resourced projects. And it's because everyone feels the pressure to look like they're doing everything. But in reality, you can pretend to do 10 things and achieve none of them. Whereas maybe if we ha had the courage, which I know is easy to say and much harder to do, to say it's just not going to work, to name the system, I'm not going to collude with these false expectations, maybe we can do too well in this time. Um, and I know it's easy to say because our cultural expectations, the norms, 
it's not okay to do this, but I think as long as we keep colluding with this idea that we're all superhuman and we can take on more and more tasks, then I don't think we'll break the ineffective cycle that we're in at the moment. Mm, that could be one way of uh, seeing it. Yeah. Uh, I think my boss will not be happy when I'm telling him no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, no, of course, exactly. Mm. And that's the norms. But, you know, we see in the UK, um, and I spoke about in my talk, every two or three years we have a new strategy with even more pressure to have even bigger results than the last one. Yeah. And so they come up with even more ambitious plans and more ambitious targets. But each time they don't achieve the goals. Um, and so I think we need to look not just at um, what we should be doing, but where we can stop doing things and where we could better invest our resource. So, for example, uh, East London Hospital in the uh, UK is a mental health trust. And when they started their improvement initiative, I've been told that they chose to stop 80% of their audit work because it wasn't because any of the topics weren't important in themselves, but because people weren't using the data, they weren't looking at it. Um, and so it, that's a really brave thing to do, yeah, to it say is. it's better to do 20 well and actually see an improvement than keep doing 100 mm. that don't achieve any improvement. But that's really courageous leadership. Yeah, that's good. You were also referring to happiness uh, research. Mm. Um, so what makes you happy this day? <laughs> well, being here at the Microsystem mm. Festival, it makes me very happy. Um, I don't know, I think I'm happiest when I'm having uh, really authentic conversations with people and um, I'm a big fan of Brené Brown who writes a lot about um, uh, vulnerability yes, and, yes. and leaning in to the challenges we have rather than turning away from them. Um, and so, yeah, I often say this to the teams and the uh, individuals that I work with is I think there's a tendency to hide the things that are difficult or that we have failed or when we uncover a process that's meant everyone thinks is working really well and it's not, it's broken and ineffective and duplicative and we hide these things. Whereas for me, I find them fascinating. Like I love to learn about the things that were unsurprisingly difficult or that caused the big delay and to turn these frustrations into a celebration of learning and discovery. Um, and I think the, the thing I find most powerful is just to share the challenges we face because I think so often we hide them and it makes you feel like you're the only one who has that challenge and you feel very isolated and alone. Whereas I think when we start sharing them and realizing they're common, then we can start addressing them in a different way. Yeah, sounds really nice. And um, um, I want to summarize this mm -hmm. uh, very nice chat. Um, you started today, so I, that's maybe also a nice way to, to stop today. Um, you're a critical optimist and, <laughs> and, and you are really the role model of a critical optimist. Oh, so, well, thank uh, you. That's, that's fantastic. So uh, thank you so much for this chat. And I you're hope welcome. that our listeners also... Um, it was helpful for our listeners. And if you want to know more about Julie Reed, you um, can find you in London or where was uh, Yes, so you can find I'm on Twitter. Uh, if you want to follow me there at uh, Julie4Clark. Um, and yeah, I'm on the Imperial College website. So I have a profile page. So yeah, okay. come and find me. Yeah, thank you so much. You're welcome. This podcast is made by Kulturum Design and Learning Center in Sweden.